The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Thankful for Frank bringing up our Sunday night experience here. It reminded me of something that happened four years ago next month. That Just sitting there, just meditating on part of the service. We had a uh, Valentine's banquet here at Cornerstone. How, new, how many of you went to that Valentine's banquet? It was 2008. Yeah, some of you are laughing already. And one of the questions that was asked, we had a newlywed game in the, in the middle of it, and Frank and Debbie were in that game. And one of the questions that was asked to Debbie when Frank was out of the room was, what one article of clothing would you get rid of if you could get rid of one, of one article of Frank's clothing? And I don't remember if Frank got it right or not when he came back. All I know is that the answer was his pink pajama shorts that he wore to bed every night. They're not salmon colored, they're pink. So, you know, it goes around. So at least I'm in a good company is what I'm saying to you. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. Here at the end of Genesis 2. Let's read verses 4 to 25 together. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. 
Lord, we are returning now to this text because we have more left to learn here. It has been a blessing to us to come here in Genesis 2 to try to understand who man is. And here at the end, we see a component of what it means to be a human that is different than all the other ones we've looked at really up to this point. We've come to the issue of relationship and how we are supposed to dwell together with others, specifically how we are to dwell and under, together and understand the, the institution of marriage. And so, Father, this morning as we look through these things, I pray that your word will be very, very clear and that you, by your Spirit, will work in the hearts of each and every person in this room because, <clears throat> Lord, it's, it's no secret we don't have perfect marriages. And there are some people in this room today, Lord, I have no doubt that are in deep distress, that are struggling, that have questions perhaps. Father, will you, in your kindness and your goodness, take your word and show them what the hope is in their marriage today? Will you take your word, make it clear for them, so they can see what it is that you see? All of us, Lord, regardless of problems or other circumstances that may be in our lives, we're all sinners. And none of us in here are perfect husbands or perfect wives. None of us in here, Lord, who are unmarried will ever get to someday be a perfect husband or a perfect wife. And so all of us need help this morning. And so we come very humbly asking that you will meet with us, asking that you will show us your word and change us through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you remember the show, and you've got to raise your hands for this one because I don't want to be embarrassed all by myself. How, how many of you remember the show Married with Children? Raise your hands, okay? All right, shame on all of us. We should forget that show, okay? <laughs> it, it followed the, the lives of a typical married couple living in Chicago, Al and Peggy Bundy, though I always want to call him Ted Bundy for some reason. I can't remember why, but uh, thankfully... The show, like most sitcoms, based itself on an exaggeration of some of the problems and quirks that you find in typical marriage relationships. It just took it to a much larger degree and overemphasized things in order to make it funny, or try to make it funny anyway. And I've realized over time, as I've thought back to that show and looked around at marriages, even marriages in the church, that there is a great deal of overlap, unfortunately, between the way most normal people view marriage and act in marriage and the way that Al and Peggy Bundy did. Like Al, many men come across as dim-witted, obnoxious cowards. That's what he was in the show. A dim-witted, obnoxious coward who constantly belittled his wife and dreamt of other women. That's a pretty good description of a lot of men around us today. And like Peggy, many women come across as scheming, manipulating flirts who constantly belittle their husbands and try to find happiness in the things they can possess. Okay? And that's unfortunate that that defines many people in our world today, but it does. It, it really is a fairly brief, succinct, compact view of what a lot of people think marriage is 
really going to be in practical everyday experience. They think that just because they went and stood before a judge or before a priest or a pastor or somebody and said, I do, and now they signed a piece of paper and they live together in the same house and they get all the tax breaks that come along with it, that this is what marriage is all about. In fact, they couldn't be farther away from the biblical concept of marriage that we see here in the text Now add to that, which I kind of take as my baseline understanding of what marriage is today, for many people, add to that the growing attack that we see on marriage in our culture all around us in every sense, okay? Don't just read into that comment just one thing. I'd say there's a growing attack on marriage across every front, every way you can look at it. Add into that that aspect there, and I'm beginning to think and sound and feel like people who are much older than me who have said things to me in the past. If you've heard people say this, then you'll recognize. I'm beginning to get a little afraid for my children and my grandchildren, what kind of world they're going to grow up in when it comes to the, the issue of marriage. And I don't mean to sound fearful there. I'm not fearful. That's probably not the right word. I just, I'm just looking at what's going on around us today, and I'm trying to think about how that's going to play itself out over the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years. And I'm trying to imagine then a world where I think it's very possible that my children or my grandchildren will live in where the institution of marriage is completely worthless from most people's perspective completely devalued of all of its worth, all the good things that I would say come with it. Now, my purpose isn't to start off sounding doom and gloom about marriage, okay? I'm not here to to beat that drum this morning, but the fact of the matter is, all I'm trying to get across to you is that the institution of marriage is in danger today. And I'm obviously speaking in a very broad sense as I say that. I'm speaking culturally But what scares me even more is that I think marriage, even within the confines of the church, of the Christian world, is also in danger. You don't see a whole lot of difference, unfortunately, as you look across the church, and I'm using that in the broadest way possible. You don't see a whole lot of difference between how marriages are in the church versus how they are in the world. There are Christian men who seem to act and think and treat their wives like Al Bundy. And there are Christian women who seem to think and act and treat their husbands like Peggy Bundy. And if you're wondering why I'm putting the word Christian in quotes there, it's not so much because I'm questioning their salvation. That's not really my point in doing it that way. My point, though, is simply to to say to you, They are not realizing in practical, everyday life what biblical marriage is supposed to be. They they don't see it. They're not feeling it. They're not experiencing it in and out day, everyday life. It's not there in their lives. And we need to address this. Some of you in this room need to address this. Some of you in this room have been struggling with this or that. Maybe it's, it's really severe. Maybe it's really mild. But whatever the case may be, we need to think about this thing biblically and carefully this morning. We're here now at the end of Genesis 2, about to finish up this last section of the first scene of the, I gotta get this right, of the first story of the 10 stories of Genesis, okay? This is where we're at now, right here at the end of Genesis chapter 2. And we've learned a lot here in this chapter about who man is. 
We've learned that man is a spiritual being, right? Who was made personally and purposefully by God in order to represent him on this earth, to bear his image, to be in his place here on this earth. He has spiritual capacity built into him. Okay, that's who man is. We've learned that man is morally responsible. He's been given certain tasks by God, things he must do, th- do he, things he must not do. And the reason God has given him these responsibilities is because he is responsible. God wants a real relationship with Adam and Eve, and so he gives him them real responsibilities. And starting last week, we began to learn that man is a being who was made to need the assistance of others to do and be all that God has made him to do and be. He was made to need communal assistance. By himself, he couldn't do those things. He needed the help of others. And so we started here in verse 18. And I told you that we would have to look at these verses in two parts because it was just so big, so much there. And so last week, we looked just at the creation of woman here in verses 18 to 22. You know, what happened when God created Eve? What did he do? Why did he do it? How did he do it? Those kinds of questions. That's what we looked at last time. But we didn't get to finish. Remember, I paused us and said, hey, come back next week and we'll we'll pick this up where we left off. We didn't get to finish it. We didn't get to see the end of the story. And so today, well, we need to finish it as much as we can. And I'll talk more about that at the end. Today, we're going to go back into the text here and we're going to look at the creation of marriage. Okay, not the creation of woman. We saw that last week. Today, we're going to look at the creation of marriage here, specifically in verses 22 to 25. And what we're going to see here in the text are five principles of biblical marriage, five defining elements of what a biblical marriage is, okay? So, and just to stress this to you up front, I think it's really important that you consider each of these five things very carefully because whether you realize it or not, just because you live in the world today, just because you exist in a culture, Every one of us has some kind of working definition of what marriage is tucked up in our brain and in our hearts. And so the question for us today is, is our understanding of marriage biblical? Are we looking at it the same way that the scriptures present it? If, we're, if we are, well then, great, praise the Lord, right? We need to just continue doing the things that we see here in the scriptures. But if we're not, we're going to have to make some changes, We're going to have to do some stuff to to fix our thinking, to help us understand marriage the way that God does. And so we want to look at these five principles of biblical marriage here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 to 25. First principle, first defining element of biblical marriage is this. We see marriage as the complete union of one man with one woman. We see marriage as the complete union of one man with one woman. Now, last week I pointed out to you how different the creation of Eve was from everything else we've seen so far in the creation story. Unlike light or the sun, moon, and stars, God didn't simply speak her into existence. Unlike man, God didn't form her out of the dust of the ground. Eve is treated differently here in the text. She is made by taking one of Adam's ribs out of his side and turning that into a woman. And the significance of this act, I said to you, cannot be exaggerated. Adam gets that. 
He understands that what has just happened is incredibly significant. And so when he sees her, guess what he does? He becomes poetic. That's what verse 23 is here in the text. And I changed my slide up a little bit so that you could see the way the poem is, is put together. Okay? He becomes poetic. This is poetry, Hebrew, Hebrew poetry. He says, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He becomes poetic as he sees this woman and realizes that this woman is his. Now, rabbit trail. Do you realize that this is the first recorded words of Adam in Genesis? I had never thought of that until this week and I was reading someone and they mentioned that this is the first time you hear Adam speak. And what's he doing the first time he hears, uh, we hear Adam speak? He's exalting his wife, right? He's exalting the woman. Well, we're going to hear him speak the next time in Genesis 3. And what's he going to be doing that time? He's going to be blaming her, okay? Exalting her in chapter 2, Blaming her in chapter 3. I'm sure there's a joke there, but I'll leave that for you guys to work out for your own. Adam becomes poetic here. But what I want to draw your attention to is not so much the fact that he becomes poetic as to what it is that he's actually trying to get across in the poetry. What is he exalting here in verse 23? What is it about the woman that is so great, so magnificent, that it captures his heart and makes him burst out in poetry right there on the spot? It, it's not her beauty, right? You, you see that. He's not saying, oh, you're such a beautiful woman. I'm, I'm so thankful you're mine. It's not her charm or her personality. It, it's not the fact that she's naked. Okay, can I just say it? Because I know some of you are thinking it anyway. It's not that. What, what is it that he's exalting here in the, in the text? It's her oneness with him. It's the fact that she is a part of him. This is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. He's exalting the oneness. She's part of him, and he is thrilled by that. He's taken by that. And so Moses, down in verse 24, picks up on this idea, and he makes a comment about it that is often misunderstood and misapplied by many, many Christians, or at least many that I've run into. You need to understand that verse 24 is not a part of the story, okay? This, Adam's not saying this. This is not a part of the story. This is Moses speaking here. Moses wants to make an application, okay? He's just finished writing these words down. He's just finished telling this part of the story, recounting what it is that Adam has said, and now he wants to apply it for you and for me and for all the people that he's reading. And your clue to that in the text is the word, therefore, See, he's saying, listen, okay, here's a story, therefore, here's a truth. Are you ready for the truth? He says, or wants the reader to understand, excuse me, where am I at here in my text? Oh, yeah, that Adam should leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, take hold of his wife, hold fast to her, and the two of them should become one flesh. That's what Adam, or Moses wants you to understand, that this is the significance of the story. Now, is he talking about Adam? No. Adam doesn't have father or mother. This is Moses thinking ahead to what it is that he wants to say, that, that when he looks at this story, he looks ahead to all of us. He sees this story as the foundational concept behind all future marriages. Now, let's pause for a moment. because And, and everybody take a breath for a second here. Breathe in. 
Okay, I want to say something to you that's going to shock about three of you in the room. Are you ready? The words one flesh here in verse 24 are not talking about sex. Okay? I know that that's how many pastors and maybe your parents have presented it to you. Today we're going to talk about the one flesh relationship. Okay? You know, and it's, it's like a euphemism because they don't want to use the word sex in church. It's not talking about sex. I don't care what you've heard, what you've thought in the past. This is not a reference to that. For Moses to say that the husband and wife become one flesh is to make a statement that is so much larger and so much more meaningful than just sex. The words one flesh here refer to the complete union between man and woman. Complete. Everything. Body, mind, soul, spirit. Everything, it all becomes one. There's no longer a he or a she. They become one. They're not just two people living under the same roof. They become one. They've done more than just sign a marriage license, right? They have become one. If you limit your understanding of one flesh to just sex, then you have terribly misunderstood the truth that Moses is trying to get across here in the story. Just like Adam and Eve are literally one flesh, okay, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, just like they're literally one flesh, so every married couple has a complete union with one another in the marriage bond. The very first principle you see about biblical marriage here in Genesis 2 is that marriage is the complete union of one man and one woman, of husband and wife. Number two, we see marriage as ordained by God. We see marriage as ordained by God. And there's a little comment at the end of verse 22, which has probably never grabbed your attention, never grabbed mine prior to this study. Moses says that after the Lord had made a woman from the rib that he'd taken from Adam, that he brought her to the man. Now, before I explain the significance of that, I want to ask you to just stop and think about how you have envisioned this scene in the past. Have you ever thought about how they met? You know, was it a situation that Adam's laying there in the grass and he's waking up and he's like groggy from the anesthesia and he's just like, oh, who are you? What, what happened to me? Is that how you've envisioned it? Or was it more a situation of, you know, he wakes up and he knows something happened, but she, he can't find her, so it's, it's typical. It's taking her longer than expected to get ready, and so he goes to try to find her, but he can't. He won't stop and ask for directions, and it's just a mess. Is that how you've envisioned this scene of how they met? It's not how the text indicates that they met. Here, Moses uses a word that should make the scene fairly clear to us all. He says that God brought the woman to the man. The word brought here is the word that you would use to describe a wife being brought to her husband in marriage. Uh, In Genesis uh, 24, verse 67, you see, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. It's sort of the the ancient equivalent of a father walking his daughter down the aisle to give her to the groom. He's bringing his daughter to the groom. You you see the same concept? This This is what's implied here. Well, here, God is the father. Here, he's bringing his daughter to Adam. You know what this is? It's the first wedding. The first marriage ceremony here in Genesis 2. And we see that God both officiated and participated 
in the ceremony. And this teaches us something about marriage. It teaches us that marriage is ordained by God. That it's not just a human, social, cultural institution that we can do with what we want. It's not ours. We didn't make it. It wasn't our plan. It wasn't our idea. This is God's thing. It's his. It's it's not just for the tax benefits. This belongs to God. And if God ordained it, if it's his idea, his plan, then guess what? He owns it. He gets to limit it. He gets to define it. He gets to set the rules for it. Everything about it is his. It belongs to him because he is the one who ordained it. So the very second principle I see here in the text is that marriage is ordained by God and therefore it belongs to him. Number three, we see marriage as the new identity of both spouses. We see marriage as the new identity of both spouses. Now remember the context of the section we're in right now, okay? What has just happened prior to verse 22, 23, right around there, okay? Adam is there in the garden. God realizes it's not good that he's alone, so God states what he's going to do. He's going to make a woman who's fit or suitable for him, and so we made the joke last time that then God does the only logical thing possible. He makes Adam name the animals, right? And the purpose of that exercise was to help Adam see the same thing that God saw. God wants Adam to realize, it's not, I'm alone. <laughs> There's no one. As attractive as the star-nosed mole is, it's not, it's not for me. It's not my type of, of, of being, okay? It's at that point there that God puts Adam to sleep so that he can take his rib and make the woman. And when Adam sees her, I said, he breaks into poetry, you see that, exalting the fact that she's part of him, but he also does something else in that poem that I didn't point out yet. Notice that he names the woman. See that? He calls her woman. Right? When Athena was a toddler, he uh, just learning to talk, you know, just you, parents, you know how this is when your kids start naming their animals and stuff like that. He loves stuffed animals. And uh, he had this little yellow puppy dog that Jamie's grandmother had given him. And he took that dog everywhere. Literally. I mean, we could not leave the house. We counted it as a dependent on our taxes. Taxes are on my mind right now, okay? It was everywhere with us, all right? It was always in his presence. So he's, he's getting to the point where he can start naming his animals, and he's got this puppy that he loves so much, and so he names it Puppy. <laughs> he had a bear. He named it Bear. He had a turtle. He named it Turtle. And I realized something about my son's personality through that is that Nathaniel's the kind of kid who just calls it like he sees it, right? A spade's a spade in Nathaniel's world. That's all there was to it. Well, here, Adam kind of reminds me of Nathaniel, right? God brings this woman to him, and he's like, ah, woman. That's kind of his whole, his whole naming plan here. I, I'm being a little mean to Adam. I don't think it was really like that. For all we know, this is the first time that word's ever been uttered in human history. Moses has no other means of saying it other than, like, brought woman and named her woman. He doesn't have any other point of reference. But very likely, Adam is naming her for the very first time, using this word for the first time in history. And as Moses is writing about this incident, you see something very significant in the name that Adam gives her. What's significant to me is that Adam names the woman in relation to himself. I will call you woman because you were taken out of man. 
He names the woman in relation to himself. But that's not the only unique thing here. Because even though you can't see it, Adam names himself as well here in the story. We have two different Hebrew words for man being used here in verse 23. Up at the top, okay, when Moses is talking about Adam, he uses the word Adam, okay, to refer to man. Okay, Adam, Adam, you hear, you, we've covered that before. And the word Adam comes from the root for the word ground, earth, dirt, Adamah, okay? Adam was made from the dust of the Adamah. And in naming Adam this and using this word for him, what is Moses doing? He's showing us a direct connection between man and the earth, between man and the rest of creation. But when Adam names himself, he no longer connects himself to the earth. He now names himself in relation to his wife. He uses a new word for man here, the word is. I am Is, you are Esau. You will be called Esau because you were taken out of Es. No longer does Adam think of himself as something just connected to this earth. He now finds new identity, naming himself. He was already in a naming kind of mood. He names himself now in relation to his wife. And what's significant about that is that both spouses here are taking on a new identity in relationship to each other. There's a change in identity based on their marriage here. Number four, number four, we see marriage as the most important relationship of life. Fourth principle. You'll notice I haven't applied any of these yet, right? We're just going through truth. There's a reason for that. We'll get to that in a minute. But number four, we see marriage as the most important relationship of life. I mentioned to you a few moments ago that verse 24 here is not, it's not a part of the actual story itself. It's not happening there in the garden. This isn't Adam speaking. This is Moses. And the word therefore was the clue to let you know that Moses is trying to inject a thought. He wants you to understand something about the story. And so he, he uses this little moment here to, to say something about marriage in general across all time. And to, merit, uh, to Moses, excuse me, the takeaway from this account of the first marriage that a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two should become one flesh. Now in the ancient world, particularly in ancient Israel, male children, boys, men, they never left home. And that seems weird to us because we're just, we don't live in that kind of a culture, that kind of world. But you think about it for a moment, it makes complete sense. When you live in an agrarian society and your life is tied to land, and the only land you're ever going to permanently own ever is the land that belongs to your family, well then, it makes sense that you're not leaving. This is the land that is your occupation, that feeds you on a daily basis. This is the land that provides your only hope of sustenance for the future. It's your retirement. It's everything to you. Men did not leave home when they got married. So who was leaving home? Okay, The girls. The ladies are leaving home. They're, they're coming to live with their husbands. Jamie and I were talking about this this week, and I said, you realize if, if we still practice that today, that when we got married, you would have moved in with me and my mom and dad in Goldsboro and lived there, and she immediately fell to the floor on her knees, lifting her hands and saying, thank you, Lord, for changing certain practices from the Old Testament. Tears streaming down her face of joy. 
Some of you ladies would probably feel that way too. It's a 100% true story, right? Maybe true isn't the right word, but it's 100% something, I promise you that. <laughs> that was the practice back then. And so it leads one to ask the question, okay, if, if the men don't leave home, why is it that Moses is giving the command to leave mother and father to the man, to the husband? Because he's not going to leave physically. He's not going to leave geographically. And so I have to understand this command relationally and emotionally. What Moses is saying here is that the relationship between a man and his wife, it becomes, the moment they get married, it becomes the most important relationship of their life. It's more important than the relationship between the child and and mom and dad. It's more important than the relationship between the, the sibling and their brothers and sisters. It's more important than the relationship between, with their children, excuse me. It's more important than the relationship with their friends or with their Navy buddies or their coworkers or the girls in, that they were friends with in college or any other relationship you can ever imagine. If you are married, Moses is saying to you here that this relationship should be the most important relationship of your life. Nothing else even comes close. Nothing else should even get near that relationship. In Moses' day, because of the social dynamic, he, he chooses the relationship of parents, which makes complete sense in this context. But the point he's making is really fairly simple. The marriage relationship becomes the most important relationship of life. And then number five, we see marriage as the mutual expression of openness and trust. We see marriage as the mutual expression of openness and trust. Moses gets back to the story here in verse 25. In fact, he concludes the story by saying that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And again, because of the day and age in which we live, I think people read that verse and they tend to want to think something sexual, like has something to do with sexuality in general. No, 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 no. Again, it's not that. It's not what Moses is trying to say. The word, or excuse me, by making the statement, Moses is simply emphasizing to us the state of innocence in which they lived. This, this is what he's trying to get across. And the word that should grab your attention here in verse 25, it's not the word naked. It's the word ashamed. That, that, should, that should just jump out at you. Why? Why is Moses saying this? I, I think by clarifying this for us, What Moses is really doing is he's giving us an insight into his own understanding of of Adam and Eve at this point. To Moses, nakedness equals shame. This is his his, his just baseline understanding. When he thinks about this, it, it just seems like it should be shameful, but it's not. But you can understand why Moses feels this way, because throughout the Pentateuch, this issue is going to come up, and every time it does, it's bad. And so, you know, I picked one. I could have picked many, but I picked one. Exodus 28, verses 42 and 43, God is giving commands about the clothing of the priests when they minister. Okay, And he specifically says to, to Moses, you shall make for them linen undergarments, underwear. You shall make for them linen undergarments to, co- undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place. Why? Lest they bear guilt and die. <laughs> you, you, 
we laugh. I understand why it's a little funny to us. But it's not funny to Moses. God is so worried about this for the priests that he doesn't even want them to accidentally expose themselves because if they do, they have to be executed. (laughs) That's, That's pretty serious, isn't it? And so here for Moses... The concept of nakedness, that's a, that's a shameful thing. And so when he writes about Adam and Eve's nakedness, he feels the need to clarify something for us all. Hey, look, there's no shame here. None. They're, they're naked and unashamed. Well, we all know where that shame came from, right? The shame that Adam and Eve experienced in Genesis 3 is directly connected to what? To sin, to the fall. Because of sin... They realized that they're naked. Apparently, they didn't even understand that at this point. No, not even a concept of that yet. Because of sin, they become ashamed and try to cover themselves with fig leaves. What an interesting thing to do. You thought about that? There's no one else there. They've already seen each other. Why are they ashamed? It's something more than what we first think, I believe. Because of sin... Moses feels the need to clarify for his readers that this situation is different than what the rest of us experience. Adam and Eve, here at the end of Genesis 2, are living in an innocent state where there is a complete expression, a mutual expression of openness and trust between the two. Nothing in between. And so Moses emphasizes that here, and I think marriage should still be characterized by that to this day. Now, My time is running very, very short here, and I still have a lot to cover with you. And so what we're going to do, if you'll allow me, we're going to carry this into one more Sunday. Okay? I'm sorry it was not in my original plan, but I don't want to cut any of this short because I think it's so important. Next week, what I want to do is I want to come back to these five principles and spend the entire time applying them. That's it. Same exact five things but now taken together and understanding what that does for us. And I really, really, really want to encourage you to be here next week, not because, not because I think my words are so great, but because I really believe that the biblical truths that we see here in the text have the ability to change our understanding and experience of marriage, right? But, but just like last time, I don't, I don't want to leave you without something. I don't want to leave you without something to take home, think about, to be challenged by, to work on. Even more than that, I don't want you to leave without seeing Jesus because the whole Old Testament is written about him, right? That's what we looked at a long time ago, and it stays constantly or should stay constantly on our minds. And so I thought about Ephesians 5, where Paul makes an application on Moses' application here in Genesis 2.24. Do you remember this passage, Ephesians 5? Beginning there in uh, verse 19, excuse me, no, verse 22, Paul begins to talk about marriage, right? He talks about wives first, and I'm not going to put it on the screen here, except I will put a part of it in a moment. He talks about wives first, how the wife should act, what she should do, what her responsibilities are. He talks about the husband next, what he should do, how he should understand himself, and he addresses all of those aspects, always tying them back to Jesus and the church, right? All throughout Ephesians 5. And there near the end of that section, he quotes Moses. He quotes Moses here in Genesis 2.24. This is verse 31 of Ephesians 5. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. It's verbatim. 
a verbatim quote of Genesis 2.24. And remember, remember what Genesis 2.24 is. It's an application, right? An application that Moses makes on the story of this first marriage that he says has significance for all future marriages. Paul agrees. It still applies. Don't forget Genesis 2 as you think about marriage. It still applies. But Paul wants to go further still. Moses looked at the story and he says, hey, this is the the real significance. Paul takes that and says, no, there's something even more significant. Because here in verse 32, Paul says this, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. As Paul looks at the truth that a man and woman can become one flesh, this is what Moses emphasized. He looks at that truth that a man and a woman can become one flesh. He recognizes that in that truth there's something actually far greater, something far more significant. He says that marriage is really an experiential illustration of redemption. This is what marriage really is. And I want you to think about that that definition that I'm giving you here, about the three main words in it. It's experiential. That means you get to see it and feel it and live it and experience it every single day. It's an illustration. That means that it's a picture of something else. It's intending to help you understand something bigger. And what's that something? It's redemption. It's the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and came to this earth so that if we place our faith in Him, guess what we get to do? We get to become one with Him. And that's salvation. You and I can't get to heaven on our own. We, are, we know that. We talk about that regularly. Sin separates us. And so what's the solution to this problem? It's that Jesus dies and pays for it, makes us one with Himself, so that in His righteousness, we stand forgiven, complete, whole, before the Father. Marriage is supposed to be an experiential illustration of that very truth. This is what it is. This this is biblical marriage. Can I ask you three hard questions and then I'm done? Number one. Are you experiencing that kind of marriage today? Don't answer it, obviously, to me right now. Have you ever experienced it? Anything close? Number two, if other people, me, the person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you, whoever, if other people were to look in on your marriage as it is right now, would they see a picture of divine redemption or nothing but human sinfulness? Which one would they see? Or a little of both? I don't know what the answer might be for you. Number three, does the gospel in any way, any way, shape, or form, have any real significance in your marriage right now? Do you even understand that question? Where, Where are you at with that? If the answer to any of those questions or all of those questions is a no, your marriage needs help. And I'm not trying to be overly hard on you or critical of you. My marriage needs help. Every marriage needs help. Because all of us are what? Sinners. That's who we are. 
We have failed and we continue to fail all the time and we will never be perfect on this side of heaven. Some of you are in, in deeper waters than others. That's just the truth. Unless you leave here discouraged this morning, focused only on failure, can I give you a preview of next Sunday? Can I give you the one and only hope that exists for you, for me, for anyone in this world? Jesus Christ can change your marriage. The gospel can change your marriage. The scriptures can change your marriage. They're powerful. Christ is powerful. The gospel is powerful. And next Sunday, I want us to come back to these principles and look at these three things that can change us to see about how we go around building a biblical marriage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we have been exposed to truth here in the text. And I know the temptation in my heart, as I'm sure it is in many others, is just to get down to the, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? That's not how you do things. That's, that's not how life really works. You work from the inside out. And truth has to penetrate deep within before we can begin to experience the things that we want to experience on the outside. And so this morning, Lord, we have stopped and we've just tried to understand these basic, basic principles of what marriage is here in Genesis 2. We haven't applied them. We haven't tried to give ourselves to-do lists or action items to take home. Lord, we're coming to you now for that. Because every one of us in here needs help. Every one of us in here has failed as husbands or wives. And if our church is supposed to be a group of people who have been redeemed and changed and, and made new by the gospel, then of all the places in our lives where that should be clear, it should be in our marriages. And so, Lord, will you take these words that Moses wrote 4,000 years ago and burn these principles into our hearts and minds this week and begin a work of the Spirit in us so that when we come back next Sunday and we come back to these same things, except now we're looking at them with different eyes from a different perspective, trying to understand what Jesus and the Gospel and the Scripture should be doing in us, will you have prepared us for that? so that the work of your word, the work of the scriptures can be complete in our lives. If you would be so kind to do that for us, Father, we have great confidence that no matter what problems are represented in this room, they can be resolved. It may be hard, it may be messy, but they can be resolved. and We can reflect the truth of what a biblical marriage is. Lord, we're thankful, as always, for the word. Thankful for the time we get to spend in it each week. I pray that you'll use it, not let it return void as you've promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.